You are listening to Ideas Aloud, a podcast series by the Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs, Ideas Malaysia. For more information about our work, log on to www.ideas.org.my to download our policy papers. Hi, before you begin, I would like to apologize for the quality of the audio. It's a little rough. Thank you and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you for coming today. Uh, I want to make a few opening remarks before I get into the presentation. Our first publication was this book, Minister of Finance Incorporated. As you can see, it's quite a thick book. It was written basically to draw attention to what Najib Razak was doing as Prime Minister. Not long after he fell, we came up with this government in business to draw attention to the reforms that were required. As you can see, quite a thick report. Here's the problem. Getting people to understand all this is just too difficult. It's a complex world. Ali just said it. How do we get people to understand this complex world? Because if you do, you will get important insights into Malaysia's political system. If you understand this world, you will understand the machinations that are going on within politics. So how do we take this and make it simple? So from now on, I can safely tell you that we are not going to come out with all these tick publications anymore. Thank you, Maria. From now on, we will come out with this. It's called the GLC Monitors. It's simple to read. It's got all the necessary diagrams, and I'll show you many of them today. It will have the necessary tables, which will capture very clearly the key political actors. We are simplifying the complex GLC world so that you can make sense of what is happening in the corporate sector, and I would argue also what is happening in the political system. So let me start today. Today we're going to start with what we call the state of play, the GLCs in Malaysia, as it stands now after G14, one year after the change. What has happened? Now most people will tell you, when you have regime change, when you move from authoritarian rule to democracy, it is always characterized by enormous impediments. Serious impediments to these changes are there. After all, this is a country that has never experienced democracy. And the institutional reforms, as well as the other reforms that are required, are enormous. And we've seen this in other countries. It will take time. One year on, we have enough time now to look at the changes that have occurred and to assess whether these changes have occurred. It's the second issue. What makes this more complex is that when we talk about change of a new regime, the problem is the new regime comprises members of the old regime. What is even more complex for us is when we talk about changing this, for example, the GLC system, the person who created the GLC system is now the new prime minister. That's how complex the problem is. So, what do we do here in this situation? This is what I want to grapple with. So the third issue which I want to bring your attention to is Pakatan Harapan. This new coalition that unexpectedly came to power. Nobody expected Pakatan Harapan to come to power. It was a coming together of rather strange bedfellows. Basatu basically is an UMNO faction. Then you have the DAP, you have PKR. PKR is a divided party. 
and then you have a mana, a breakaway from pass. What a strange combination of parties. We've got a book coming out next week on this. I'll let you know about it. We're launching the book on November 8th at the University of Malaya. There you will see more about this coming together of rather strange bedfellows who we, when we studied the elections, said there's no way this Pakadak Harapan is going to come to power. And I would think that Mahate too thought so. Mahate also thought this. Now, I would think that Mahate actually thought that he could use Pakatan Harapan as a mechanism to really bring down the volume of support that Amno had, which would serve as a mechanism to remove Najib, but not necessarily bring about the fall of Amno. And then one day he woke up, and here he is now in power with his number one nemesis, Anwar Ibrahim. I'm just giving you the state of play. We are welcome to discuss it during the Q&A. But I don't think anyone here will disagree with anything that I've said so far. That is the political system. Then we have the GLC sector. The GLC sector is far more important than you make it out to be because the number one scandal in the world, 1MDB, involved a GLC. So how come the GLC is not something that we are putting our hats on and looking at it carefully? And 1MDB was just one company which went to monumental heights. It went international. Whatever we may say about Mahate, Mahate kept the GLCs local. Anwar took it, Najib took it to new heights. And he exposed the GLC world to the world, to the go became global. I want to come back to what Mahathir is doing today. Now, this is important because if you look at the GLC or 1MDB scandal, what you will see here and what we will show you, or what we showed you in our two previous publications, was an institutional structure that was created, a complex state business institutional structure where power was concentrated, enormous power was concentrated there. How Mahathir used it was very different from how Najib eventually used it. So there are differences here. But how is this institutional architecture that Mahathir created being reformed? That is the question. What does it mean, this structural power, this structural power that this institutional architecture has under the current administration? So that is my key question. Mahathir himself said he's going to dismantle it. But the question today that we have to ask ourselves is this. What happens when you have this kind of institutional architecture where enormous power is concentrated, and then you have regime change, but the regime change now constitutes people who created this institutional architecture? And what happens to this institutional architecture when we have regime change where the key actors in the new political system are at loggerheads with each other? Pakatan Harapan is not a coalition of, very, of a united coalition of parties. You know that. So this is the questions we are going to grapple with. My contention to you today is this. When you see the GLC world, and when you understand what is happening in the GLC world, you will understand Malaysian politics. And that is why this is so important. So let me start here now. Let's go back to before. 
What was important in this institutional architecture was this. Ministries, and Malaysia has too many ministries, cabinet ministries. Under Najib, we had 25 of them. And each of these ministries, well, most of them, 18 of them, have GLCs. And we showed in our second publication this figure. And we, call, we said that among the, G, among the ministries that were most important, there were four of them. The Prime Minister's Department, the Minister of Finance, the Ministry of Rural and Regional Development, and mostly the Ministry of Science, Technology, and Innovation. I won't get into it apart from saying that these four ministries had enormous control over the corporate sector. You want to know how big it was? Well, here they are, the big four. Just those big four, this was Najib's corporate universe. And I can tell you now, this by no means captures the total volume of companies in Najib's corporate world. No means. This is something we pieced together with my young students and through serious hard work, we piece this together. I can tell you now that even the government, even the architects of this, this world, Mahate and Daim Zainuddin, were shocked when they saw this world that had now emerged under Najib's administration. I would argue actually it emerged under Mahate, but it just became bigger and bigger after Mahate left. Mahate called this the monster. And he said in the run-up to the general election that he's going to dismantle this monster. What have we done? What have we created? And he said it was this monster that allowed Najib to plunder from the corporate sector, to plunder from Malaysia. And one company, just one company in this world, manifested that plundering, 1MDB. So can you imagine if 1MDB could do so much, and we know now a lot about 1MDB because the whole world was interested in 1MDB because these people took it out into the global arena and suddenly everyone was looking at it. This world has not been investigated even by our own media. This world has not been investigated by our own academics and our think tanks. If 1MDB could do such plundering, what of this world? This is the reforms that we were talking about. This was the reforms that Mahathir zeroed in on in the run-up to the general election and said we must change this. So what did Mahathir do? Now we come to today. What did Mahathir do? Mahathir, when he came to power, he changed. He changed this world. Can I go back to the can I go back to this one? Can I go back to this slide? Yes. He changed this world, and this world, can we come down this world, to creating a new big four. This is what we call the big four. Can we go to this? Yes. Here, you may be asking why I'm saying big four and there are five ministries up there. This is the big story for today. This is the one story we are telling in this one, in our very first of a series of GLC monitors that are going to come out. The first big story. The big story is this. Mahate created a different kind of big four. But the, the fifth is, of course, Ministry of Finance, Lim Guaning. My contention here to you is this. Lim Guaning is not part of the big four. 
Limboning is a figurehead. The Ministry of Finance, which was huge, has been dismembered. The Prime Minister's Department, Mahathir created a new ministry called the Ministry of Economic Affairs under Azmin, the Ministry of Rural Development, and the Ministry of Entrepreneur Development. No, not Mosi, but Ministry of Entrepreneur Development are the new Big Four. And who are the members of the Big Four? Mahathir Mohammed from Basatu, Rina Harun from Basatu, Mohammad Radzwan from Basatu, and Azmin Ali from PKR. Azmin Ali, as you know, is a very close ally of Mahathir Mohammed. These four men, and I will show you now, control the corporate sector. Through these four ministries, Mahathir has gained control over the corporate sector. Now, how is it done? Let me take you through. I made the contention, now let me show you the evidence. It's too small to see here what is happening, but if you look at the handouts that we've given you, the GLC monitor, you can, you'll get a bigger presentation of what is shown up here. On your left is the Prime Minister's Department under Najib Razak. Najib, as you know, also served as Finance Minister. Mahate, in the year 1999, decided, having fallen out first with Tunku Razali as Finance Minister, then having fallen out with Anwar Ibrahim as Finance Minister, then having fallen out with then Prime Finance Minister Daim Zainuddin, decided one day he's going to be Finance Minister. It was Mahathir who decided as Prime Minister he will concurrently serve as Finance Minister. Because you just cannot transfer control of the Ministry of Finance, which is so huge, into the hands of another politician. He had too many feuds with his ministers of finance. So what did Mahathir do? He created this idea of the Prime Minister concurrently serving as Finance Minister. He should not have done that. When Abdullah Badawi came to power, he decided he's going to do the same thing. Because Abdullah looked upon the Ministry of Finance and realized, because he was not considered a very strong Prime Minister, that he couldn't relinquish control of the Ministry of Finance to someone else. So he kept it too. And when Najib came to power, Najib suddenly also realized he was sitting on a gold mine. When Najib came to power, he actually talked about privatization. If you look at the Pamandu plans, the Pamandu plans clearly talk about the first one. Talks about the first report. They're going to privatize, we're going to deconstruct this world. And then subsequently stop doing it. After, from the second year onwards, Najib never ever spoke of privatization. Why? Because he realized what he was sitting on. Now when Mahathir came to power, he was told and it's in the manifesto, the Prime Minister cannot be the Finance Minister. That's wrong. So what did Mahathir do? Because he could not be Finance Minister, he looked at the Prime Minister's department and he thought to himself, okay, if I can't be Prime Minister, I'm going to take key companies in the Ministry of Finance and put it under my personal control. And he took Kazana, as you can see up there, our sovereign wealth fund, Kazana, which owns a huge segment of the corporate sector, and he put it under his own control. Then he took PNB, which you know is a major equity investment fund, Pabondila National Bahad, which controls a huge segment of the corporate sector, and here I'm talking specifically big business. 
Mahathir knew by taking control of Kazana and PNB, he would now gain control of the largest enterprises in this country. And he took it out of the control of the Minister of Finance and he put it under his own control. De facto finance minister. This was not the reforms that we were talking about. There was supposed to be a clear demarcation between the prime minister and the finance minister. But Mahathir wanted control of the largest enterprises. And what he did then was he appointed himself as chairman of Kazana. He also leads PNB. So it's a dual control over these enterprises. Now, the point I'm making here is this. If you look at the manifesto, the manifesto clearly says politicians should not be sitting as directors or chairman of these enterprises. The minute the prime minister sits there, he's going to have enormous control over these enterprises. And yet, he appointed himself as chair. He also then appointed Azmin Ali, not the finance minister, Lim Guaning. He appointed Azmin Ali to co-chair or to serve as second chair of Kazana. So you're seeing here now the consolidation of big businesses in the office of the prime minister. Meanwhile, what happened to Ministry of Finance? Now much was made of the fact that Lim Guaning of the DAP is now Minister of Finance. A sea change ostensibly had occurred in Malaysia. Was it, was it really a a monumental change as it was made out to be. And if you look at this diagram, you can see from on the left, the Minister of Finance incorporated the book that we, that we wrote, which showed how enormous wealth was concentrated in MOF, had now been reduced to having control of EPF, KWAP, the Retirement Fund for Pensioners, which is not very big, and MOF incorporated the holding company for the government. If you go and look at MOF Inc. today, it basically holds loss-making enterprises. There's nothing major going on in MOF Inc. today. In the first budget that Lin Guaning presented, he even talked about revamping most of these companies and just divesting them because they were not doing much anyway. In terms of, in terms of Guaning's power over the corporate sector, it was minimal, minimized. As for EPF, yes, they do control a huge segment of the corporate sector too. They have enormous investments in big businesses. But I can tell you now, when it comes to EPF, I don't think the government would want to play bucks with EPF. You know the voluminous number of people who invest in EPF. I think practically everyone here in this room has got money in the EPF. And no major, no politician, no prime minister ever played bucks with EPF. Our research also indicates that. So leave it be. Don't play around with the savings of these people. But we will play around with Kazana. Why not? Kazana is the sovereign wealth fund. And PNB, okay. But PNB and Kazana, I'll come back to my main point. They have enormous control over big businesses. The third one, the Ministry of Economic Affairs. There was absolutely no reason for Mahati to create a new economic-based ministry. We already have METI. We have Ministry of Finance. 
Why do we need a Ministry of Economic Affairs? And what does this Ministry of Economic Affairs really do? He basically took EPU, the Economic Planning Unit, and he put it here. And he said, you are now in charge of policy planning. Much has been made of how much or what great policies have come out from MEA, or how little has come out from MEA. I'll come to that at the end. What else did Mahathir do with MEA? He basically took major Bumiputra-owned GLCs and he channeled them here. And here what you can see are, if you look at these enterprises in yellow, these are major Bumiputra-owned GLCs. So basically he cornered the Bumiputra GLCs in the hands of Asmin Ali. He made Asmin Ali quite powerful. So if Mahathir controls the big businesses, Asmin controls the Bumiputra-based GLCs. And then Mahathir said, when he came to power, in September, I'm going to reintroduce the Bumiputra policy. He had a Bumiputra Congress on the 1st of September. It was supposed to be open door, it became closed door, and after the discussions in the closed door meeting, they came out, Daim Zainuddin, then chairman of the Com Committee of Eminent People, who was supposed to come out with economic policies to reform Malaysia, came out and he said, we're going to keep the Bumiputra policy, but this time, we're going to get it right. I'm bringing this up because Azmin also became a great proponent till today of the Bumiputra policy. This is a contradiction of the manifesto. The manifesto clearly says we will now have needs-based policies. It's time to create a new Malaysia where we stop having racialized discourses, race-based policies. And when Azmin said we are going to reinforce the Bumiputra policy and we're going to use the GLCs too. It was Anwar Ibrahim, the Prime Minister in meeting, who told Azmin his words, Azmin, read the manifesto. We said, no more race-based policies. I'm bringing this up to show you now the conflict between the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister in waiting. I am showing you now here through these diagrams, how the institutional architecture has been changed. I am showing you here now the reconfigurations of GLCs. And I'm trying to point out to you now how this is linked to the political feuding that is going on in the country. To reinforce this, let me show you the next one. The ministry, next one, the Ministry of Rural Development. Now you may think, what? Ministry of Rural Development, why are you even talking about the Ministry of Rural Development? But if you look at the Ministry of Rural Development and if you look at the legend, you will see here what is most significant about the Ministry of Rural Development is that they control important statutory bodies. The Ministry of Rural Development's control of the statutory bodies is such that through them, they have significant influence in rural areas. That is the point. The Ministry of Rural and Regional Development, as it was once called, was created by Najib Razak. Najib Razak. Tun Abdul Razak. 
in the 1970s. Why? Because this became a mechanism for him to reach down into the grassroots areas where hardcore poverty was situated. That was Tun Razak's great achievement. He was the Prime Minister of Rural Development. This was the architecture that he created to help solve rural poverty. And I would argue he did a good job with the statutory bodies until it was hijacked by his successors in UMNO who made this a tool for patronage. And if you see all those blue things around the yellows, the statutory bodies, all those blue things are GLCs. We don't need those GLCs. But those GLCs became mechanisms through which you could practice patronage and distribute rents in rural areas. This became very important because UMNO's base is in the rural areas. What is also important is under this ministry, we saw some of the worst corruption in the country. There were institutions like MARA. You all know the corruption involving MARA, isn't it? Ministry of Rural and Regional Development. And this ministry has always been controlled by a senior UMNO leader, an UMNO vice president. The last prominent leader of this ministry was Shafi Abdal. I'm sure you all know who Shafi Abdal is, or was. He was UMNO vice president. He was a very close ally of Najib Razak. And then there was a fallout. And after the fallout, because of 1MDB, suddenly Shafi Abdal was arrested for high-level corruption. Do you all remember that? He was charged in his orange outfit in court, remember? Disgraced, taken to court. After the election, the case has been dropped. And today, Shafi Abdal is Chief Minister of Sabah. Now, isn't that interesting? And Sabah is important. He controls Warisan. The power play. I hope you're seeing it. And his place was taken over by another senior UMNO leader, the minister for the MP for Bera. What's his name? I slips my mind. Now that they're all out of power, I can't remember all these UMNO leaders' names anymore because the new names are more important to us now. This ministry is important. The minister is Rina Harun. It is important to Basatu because through this ministry, you reach the Malay heartland areas. Through this ministry, you reach the hardcore poor in Sabah. As you know, Basatu has no support in the Malay heartland areas. None. That area is cornered by pass and UMNO. This ministry is important for them to use to practice patronage to secure support from the Malay heartland. You see the institutional structure? You see why this is important? And you see now why Rina Harun of Basatu is sitting there? So this is the power play. The system allows for that power play. I want to go on to the next one. Okay, before I get to that, I should point out, one of the most important things about this ministry is this. It became a mechanism. Why did they have all these GLCs there? Because it became a mechanism to appoint directors to these GLCs. 
when you become a director of the DLCs, two things can happen. One, you get a stipend. Two, you can use this to consolidate your support. So you appoint directors, these directors, because you're getting the stipend, they become very loyal to the leaders. I would add a third thing. Through this DLC system, because they get a stipend, they get access to money, this is government money, they get access to this money, which is then channeled into the financing of politics. This is a system that was created to help finance politics at the grassroots level. So, if you read the manifesto, the manifesto clearly says no more directorships. Remember, I just mentioned it. Now look at this. Here is a list of directors of these. This is just the statutory bodies. Huh? This is not the GLCs. So if you look at the statutory bodies, and I'll go down the list. Zulkifli Muhammad Basatu, who was he? He lost in the last election to a past candidate. Mazuki Senbok, defeated by an AMNO candidate in Trindano, appointed as a director. Zulkifli Ali, defeated by a past candidate, appointed as a director. The list goes on. I'm not going to read all the names. But you get the point. Basatu is doing exactly what Anno did. They're using the same system. They're playing the same patronage games. They're using this to reach down to the grassroots. And they're giving directorships to people who lost to keep them loyal to the party. In other words, there's been no change in the system. It's a reinforcement of the system, in fact. I want to go to the next ministry. This, this is where it really gets interesting. The Ministry of Entrepreneurial Development. You all will be thinking, why Ministry of Entrepreneurial Development? Why do I bring this up? It's not in my earlier slides, uh, earlier books, too. But this ministry, and if you look at it, it may not look very big, has one major thing going for it, the SME Bank the SME sector, SME Corp, SME Corporation, SME Bank. Through this ministry, you control the SME sector. That is the story that we want to tell you today. Minister of Prime, Prime Minister's Department controls big businesses. The Ministry for Economic Affairs controls the Bobby Putra GLCs. Greener, through Ministry of Rural Development controls the statutory bodies. And this ministry controls the SMEs. The entire corporate sector is under the control of these Basatu leaders with, with Azmet. And here, what is also interesting, if you read the last budget, I'm not going to get into it, if you read the last budget, SME Bank is going to be merged and made even bigger they're going to be merged with two other development financial institutions. With Dana, Dana Jamin, Export Import Bank, Bank of Mangunan. They're all going to be merged. Can you imagine how big SME Bank is going to be after the merger? And do you know that the SME sector in this country constitutes 98% of the corporate sector? Malaysia has 1.25 million companies. 98% of them are SMEs. And this minister has access to that corporate sector. The enormous influence and power in the hands of this minister. This is the reconfiguration we were seeing. We, is this the reconfiguration we were expecting to see? 
This is a power reconfiguration. The GLC system was an institutional architecture, as I said, to create a mechanism to concentrate power in the hands of the ministers, which they used to serve their vested interests. It was a system that had to be broken up. They didn't do it. Even though Mahathir himself said, we have to do something about this monster. Instead, Mahathir brings up the Bumiputra agenda. Now here I want to put this up on the table for you because this is very closely linked to the, when we talk about the GLCs and we talk about what's happening in the GLCs and how they're reconfiguring power, it is also linked to public policies. The key public policy is the Bumiputra policy. I'm bringing this up and putting it on the table because this is the issue which is also now causing serious tensions in the country the Bumiputra policy. And if you look at this, this is from the 10th Malaysia plan. As you can see here, the volume of equity owned by Bumiputras, there was an impressive growth from 1970 until 1990. After that, it began to taper off because they kept talking about this 30% figure. They kept shifting around with these figures. So, but anyway, if you go by the government's own admission, Bumiputra equity has not grown much since 1990. And if you look at the figures for the Chinese and Indians, Chinese in particular, what is very interesting is Chinese equity ownership grew from 1970, from 27% to, in 1990, at its peak of 45.5%. Frankly, they should have just stopped this in 1990 because the successes achieved between those 20-year period under the NEP was quite remarkable, just going by this table. But since then, what is interesting is how the equity figures for Chinese too has, have begun to fall. And they're now down to 34%, and it stopped in the year 2008. It stopped in the year 2008 because Najib decided he's not going to release these figures anymore. Because these figures clearly indicated that the Bumiputra policy in terms of trying to create Bumiputra-owned enterprises to selective patronage was a system that was just not working. So he just stopped it. He didn't bother to renew it. What is also interesting is the figure for foreigners. If it was 62% in 1970, look how far it fell behind to by 1990. Its low point was again, interestingly enough, 1990, 25%. And since then, it has been increasing. And now, under the shared prosperity vision, the government has given us the updated figures. This I took from the shared prosperity vision document. This is an updated figure. I don't know why they stopped at 2015, because we are well into 2019. They're still four years behind. But these figures also clearly indicates that there's something shocking happening in the corporate sector. First, among Bumiputras, you can see Bumiputra equity figures clearly indicate that the Bumiputras are falling behind. They continue to fall. Today, they are down to 16.2%. Something is not right. What is happening with Bumiputras equity ownership? Why is it falling behind? And if we think that's bad, look at the equity ownership figures for non-Bumiputras. It's also falling behind. It's down to 30%. It's almost similar to what it was in 1970. Nobody is gaining here. Nobody. The non-Bumiputras are falling behind. The Bumiputras are falling behind. So who's gaining? Foreigners. 
foreigners are gaining. Something is not right. Now, they haven't given me or us, I should say, any indication how they're going to rectify this except to say they're going to reintroduce the Bumiputra policy. And how is that possible when you also have at the same time a dialogue about, dialogue about shared prosper, prosperity? And can you please tell me also how with this institutional architecture that I just showed you, which I assume is going to be the framework which they will use to enhance Bumiputra equity ownership, how is that going to work? After all, it was Dimes Adudin who said, I'm going to give we are going to keep the Bumiputra policy, but this time we are going to get it right. What have they done to change it? We haven't seen it. Instead, what we are seeing, I want to bring you to this. This is a figure of the top companies in the year 2017. In red, what you are seeing are the GLCs. In black are the private companies, privately owned companies. In Yellow, I've highlighted the Bumiputras in business. Let me start with the yellow. If you want to find a Bumiputra, key Bumiputra figure in the corporate sector, you have to go down to number 42. Forget Asman Hashim. Asman Hashim is selling off his stake in M-Bank. It's going to go off very soon. He'll be leaving the corporate scene very soon by his own admission. So we have to go down to number 42 to find a Bumiputra in business. And it's none other than Said Mokhtar. Red flag immediately, isn't it? Said Mokhtar is the only Bumiputra in the top 50. I highlighted Tony Fernandez and his partner Kamarudin Miranun, but frankly I shouldn't have done that. But just to show how paltry the figures are for Bumiputras in business. Mahathir himself said it before this policy failed. In 2003, when he stood down as prime minister at one dinner, the Harvard Business Alumni Business Dinner, he said it, my policy failed. So why is he reintroducing it? The figures clearly indicate it failed. These figures clearly indicate this. What's new? How is it different? Now, what is different is Today, I can say it, but it's not going to come out in this, it's not coming out in this monitor. It will come out monitor number two, and I'll call you back again, and I hope you'll come. <laughs> the divestment process has begun. All those companies in red, the GLCs, now Mahate said, Kazana, you didn't implement the Bumiputra policy, you must do it. And now he's saying, now I'm going to start selling. Who is going to buy all these lucrative assets? They are among the top companies in the country. These are Malaysia's biggest enterprises. Who is going to be the beneficiary of these companies? Now that's a serious question we have to look out for. You already know it's happening. They're talking about selling plus. And who's in the figure? Who is one of the figureheads? One of the major people who's come up again to possible possible candidate to buy, plus none other than Halim Saad. And Halim Saad is a figure of the 1990s, closely linked to Mahathir and Daim Zainuddin. The same names are coming up. They just sold Media Premier, which was controlled. Media Premier was a GLC. It is now in the hands of Saeed Mukhtar. Said Mukhtar today controls the, the media sector. 
if it was once in the hands of the government, now it's going to go into private hands. And I'm sure more is going to happen. And this is what this forum here today is about. To tell you, be wary of this. What is happening now that Mahathir has control of these companies through the ministries, through PMO, and through MEA, what is he going to do with his control over these assets? He has already said it. I'm going to divest. And I'm going to have the Bumiputra in place so that the divestments will go only to Bumiputras. But who are these Bumiputras? There are no major Bumiputras who can buy over these assets. I just gave you the figures. So who's going to get it? And now comes the other big question. Where is the money going to come from for them to buy this? Do you know how expensive the equity stock is for these companies? Try buying CIMB or Malayan Banking. Well-connected people are going to get their hands on these assets. This is the story we wanted to put to you today. What are the implications of this? The renewal of the old system. We thought with the rise of democracy, and weren't we all elated just one year ago? This time last year, we were on cloud nine. Malaysia had finally democratized. Radical changes are coming. A new Malaysia was being created. And instead, what we are seeing is a revamp of that old institutional architecture where power was concentrated, is being reinstituted and employed in a different way. The same old system that was abused by politicians is now being abused by the current regime, the current government. I told you, if you understood the GLC world, you will understand Malaysian politics. There you are. Now you know. Now you know why Rina Harun remains as Minister of Rural Development. Now you know why they don't want to bring about changes in the GLC world. It's too important. With this world, they can capture rural support. If you talk to them quietly, they'll admit it. Second issue is the point about the strong man, the re-emergence of the strong man, democracy, I don't think many of us will deny the fact that Mahathir has emerged as the strong man of Malaysian politics again. Control of decision-making powers is clearly in his hands. The PH is a coalition of many parties, but there seems to be no indication that they can check the strong man. Meanwhile, there is a clear political feud between him and Anwar. The personalized politics of the 1990s is repeating itself. What we saw in the 1990s, well, here you are. History repeats itself. A coalition subservient to a strong man and a personal feud between the prime minister and the prime minister in waiting. What are the implications of this? Meanwhile, Mahathir, to consolidate his power, uses the GLC system, the prime minister's department, our big story for today. The prime minister's department controls big businesses, economic affairs controls Bumiputra GLCs, rural development controls the statutory bodies, and entrepreneur development controls the SMEs. 
economic concentration in the hands of Basatu leaders. Press, I hope you're taking note. It's time to get the story out. I've made it as simple as possible. We invited the press to highlight the story. We have to put a stop to this. The implications of this on the economy is just too great. Meanwhile, directorships, they promised us politicians will not be directors. There you are, they're doing it again. The rural areas, the GLCs have become a tool, a mechanism to muster political support. Nothing has changed. And meanwhile, we are being told we're going to get a new act. The Political Financing Act is in the pipeline. In fact, it's supposed to be coming out any time now in Parliament. Don't hold your breath that it's going to change the system. Don't hold your breath that we're going to see a transparent and accountable political system, political financing system. If this is happening now, can you really expect us to believe that a new political financing act is going to be different? And instead, the state business ties, what are we seeing? The patronage system is being reinforced. The sale of these assets are going into the hands of well-connected people. I've said this before in some of my articles that I've written, I'm saying it now. New oligarchs may be created. Wealth is going to be concentrated in the hands of a small group of people. What are these people going to do with their economic wealth? Even if there's a change of government, with these oligarchs now controlling the economy, they can control the political system. That's our future. If we do not stop this from happening, and once this wealth is transferred into the hands of the oligarchs, you cannot get it back. And meanwhile, to make this all work, you must articulate a policy which is race-based. It justifies the dispensation of all these assets to the ground. It makes it legit. While in fact, these policies are policy for concentrating political power and economic power. So here we are, the political reconfiguration. I started off discussing business, but let me end off by talking politics. Because it's all about politics. The power reconfiguration. We all know it's happening. There's no need to put it politely anymore. It's out there in the open. Anwar himself has said there is a move to get him out. What are we having here in cabinet? How strong is the cabinet? Is the cabinet one that is accountable? Or is there a kitchen cabinet? Is there a big four? I've shown you there's a big four. But there is, is there a big four within the big four, a kitchen cabinet comprising very powerful people such as Mahate and Dan Zainuddin, his key economic advisor? And what of this renewed practice of patronage? The implications of all this is it will impair development. We are talking about reforms to reach down to the poor. We are talking about reforms of spatial reforms, especially the underdeveloped parts of Malaysia. It has now been exposed that we have hardcore poverty, which is much higher than 0.4%. The rate is now at least 14%. Finally, it's out. This system, which was supposed to eradicate poverty, and I remember telling you, Tun Razak set it up to help resolve hardcore poverty, especially in rural areas. Can be, it can work, but it's been hijacked not to reform equity redistribution properly, but to serve as a mechanism for political patronage. 
So today you are going to hear from the government a lot of rhetoric about progressive reforms. That's the rhetoric, but the reality is we haven't seen any real, real change in terms of government intervention in the economy for the benefit of the nation. It is for ben the benefit of political leads. The rhetoric is ownership and control of GLCs, we're going to reform it, but you're seeing here now very clearly the system has been reinforced. And finally, the rhetoric has been of shared prosperity, when the reality is one of wealth concentration and power concentration, political power concentration. This is what we have to stop if we want to keep the new Malaysia that we got last year. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ideas Allowed. For more information about our work, log on to www.ideas.org.my and follow us on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean.